So what is the story of the Bible? What is the story of the Bible? You could think of it in these four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. You could think of it as creation where God made the world. Fall where people fell into all kinds of rebellion and sin. Redemption where God made a way by pouring out His grace and providing salvation for those who would believe. And new creation, the hope and the promise of a life restored, of a world and a cosmos remade in the future. That God will make all things new in the new creation. We could think of the Bible that way. And that's helpful to think in those categories. But, but today we're going to look at, look at it a little differently. We're going to look at it through the lens of the books of the Bible. All in all, there are 66 books in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, there are how many? Anybody know? 39. 39 books in the Old Testament. And there's three main divisions in the Old Testament. If you look on your paper on the bottom left-hand side, it says the three main divisions, which are history, poetry, and the prophets. History, poetry, and the prophets are sort of the big three divisions in the Bible. And the first thing to know about the Bible is that it is not in chronological order. Okay, the books of the Bible in the Old Testament are not all, I will say, in chronological order. In fact, the prophets are gathered into two groups. The prophets are gathered into two groups that's sometimes called the major prophets and the minor prophets. This is not like baseball. It's not that one is more important than the other. One is the major leagues and one is the minor leagues. No, it just means that the major prophets are the longer ones. They're, the long, they're just bigger. They're just longer. It doesn't have to do with their importance. So because they're in that order, I've placed them there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those are the major prophets. And then the 12 are the minor prophets over on the right side of that list. Okay, just want to give you a little bit of the landscape as we get into this. And so we have the history, the poets, and the prophets. I would say the theme of the whole Old Testament could be summed up in one quick sentence. And I've already said it earlier. Here it is. You will be my people, and I will be your God. That's the entire Old Testament in one sentence. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Let's start at the beginning with Genesis. Here's Genesis. In the beginning, God created everything that is. Look around. God created the heavens and the earth. Everything was in perfect harmony in the beginning. There was no war. There was no death. There was no strife. There was no worry. There were no tears. There was no sickness or disease. There was flourishing. There was beauty. There was peace. And God created humanity, male and female, and He placed them in a, per in a paradise. The Garden of Eden, this is not just a story. This is what life was created to be like. At the beginning, life was created to be harmonious. You know that peace that we all long for? That's how it was in the beginning. In Genesis, we had peace. We had harmony. We had peace with God. We had uh, harmony with one another. But very quickly, as you know, uh, things went bad. God made a covenant. And He said, if you will obey my one rule then you will have everlasting life. 
If you can just keep this one rule, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will have everlasting life. And you know what it's like sometimes to be tempted. Well, the first humans were tempted, but they weren't tempted like us because they didn't have an inclination to sin. They were tempted to sin even when they had no desire to sin. You and I have a desire to sin. It's easy for us to fall into temptation. It was not easy for them. In fact, the Bible says the devil disguised himself as a serpent to come and deceive the woman and the man. And they fell into sin. That's the beginning of the story. That's the beginning of the, what the Bible talks about as the fall. The fall from the original creation. And so we fell into a world of darkness, into a world of sin and evil, into the power of death, into the power of misery. And if you just look around, this is the world we live in, right? Just read the headlines. There was another church shooting recently, like a couple days ago in Birmingham, which we're going there today (laughs) to Birmingham. The world is full of misery. Why? Because we sinned. And we crashed this world into a curse. That is the world that Genesis begins to tell us about. That is the world that we live in. And so God cast Adam and Eve, his first human creations, he cast them out of the garden so that they would no longer have access to the tree of life, but that they would die. One of the saddest verses in the book of Genesis is this. Then Adam died. The man who was created to live forever because of his sin died. This is the beginning of the story of Genesis. But Genesis moves very quickly from creation and fall to redemption. And we have redemption in the form of a covenant. A covenant is a relationship, a formal relationship between two parties. And the covenant that God created originally was a covenant of life. A covenant of life and death. And the, man, and the woman broke that covenant, remember? And it cast them into death. And so God made a second covenant. And this covenant was called the covenant of grace. And I want to show you in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I've got it up on the screen. And it says this. God is speaking to Abram, one man that he calls out of the wilderness, and he says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. You see, it wasn't Abram's righteousness. Y'all get this. From the very beginning of the Bible, it was about grace. It was about God crediting to Abram righteousness, obedience, goodness. He didn't have it in himself. Christianity is not about being a good person so that God will accept you. It's about God accepting you by his grace so that you can can become a good person. You can become like God. But don't get the order twisted. Because then you have religion instead of Christianity. You have rules instead of grace. The story of, and I'm spending the most time on Genesis, I promise. Chapter 17, verse 7, God said, I will establish my covenant, this new covenant of grace. I will establish my covenant between you and me and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. 
and to your offspring after you. In other words, you will be my people and I will be your God. You hear that theme? It's going to come up over and over throughout the Old Testament. You will be my people and I will be your God. God made a new covenant. He made a new covenant of grace with Abram. And Abram passed that covenant of grace on to his son Isaac, who passed it on to his sons Jacob and Esau, who passed it on, Jacob, to his 12 sons, the tribes of Israel. You may remember Joseph. You may remember Judah, two of the tribes, two of the sons of Jacob. Jacob's other name was Israel. All right, Jacob's other name was Israel. It was his nickname that the Lord gave him. And so at the, begin, at the end of the book of Genesis, which I'm going to place way over here at the beginning. At the end of the book of Genesis, something falls off. What happens? They go down where? To Egypt. At the end of this book, the brothers sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And he goes down to Egypt, and then years later, because of a famine, the entire family moves down to Egypt, and they're living in Egypt as strangers, as people who are not really welcome. Years later, after Joseph was long forgotten, one of the pharaohs decided to make use of all of these people called the Israelites, the children of Israel, Jacob, remember? The children of Israel. And he put them into slavery. He said, let's use these people. And he, put, he brought them into slavery, but God raised up Moses to bring God's people out from slavery, to bring God's people, to rescue God's people from the hand of the Egyptians. And so God, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, brought plagues, a series of plagues on the Egyptians. And Moses stood up and spoke for God and said to Pharaoh, the king of the world, let my people go. And eventually, Pharaoh relented. And he let the people go. And they left Egypt they left Egypt and they, and they went into the wilderness and they, and they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. God was going before them in a pillar of cloud and fire by night. And He led them to a mountain called Mount Sinai. And at Sinai, the book of Exodus tells us at Sinai that God gave them His law. He gave them His law. He said, I've redeemed you. I've rescued you. Now, this is how you should live. Have no other gods before me. You shall not murder. You shall not covet in all of the Ten Commandments. And then God said, and not only do I want you to, to, to obey me, but I want you to worship me. And so the rest of the book of Exodus is where God lays out a design for the tabernacle, which was a tent where people would bring their offerings, blood sacrifices. Why? Because sin requires blood for payment. The penalty of sin is death. And so the people would have this visible representation of that in the sacrifices that God would raise up priests to offer at the tabernacle. And that all happens in Exodus. And then as Moses continues to tell us in Leviticus, 
We read more instructions about how God's people are to conduct themselves in worship as they're in the wilderness and as they're learning how to be a nation, how to be a people. And the priests would teach them all about ethics, what they should and should not do, and teach them about the holiness of God, that God cannot be approached. He is unapproachable in His goodness and in His holiness. And so the book of Leviticus lays out a very detailed sort of handbook for the priest and how they're to conduct worship in Israel, this nomadic people who are wandering in the wilderness. And speaking of wandering in the wilderness, the people of Israel come to the point where they're about to enter into the promised land, and so they send spies into the land. They send spies into the land to see, is this a good land? God said it was a good land. Was it a good land? Yes, it was. A land flowing with, come on, flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it was a land overflowing with blessing, but the spies came back and said, yeah, it's great, but the people there are mighty. They are too big for us. There's no way we can do it. Only two of the spies said, we got to trust the Lord. The Lord promised, and they said, no, we're not going to go into the land. The people rebelled against God, and so God sent them into a period of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness so that that generation would not enter the promised land because of their unbelief. Because unlike Abraham, they didn't believe God that what he said was true, that he would provide a way for them. After 40 years, Moses, old as he is, begins to review the law of God. Deuteronomy means second law. And it's really just a rehash of the law that God gave back in the other books in Exodus. He's retail, he even relists the Ten Commandments. They're in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And so you've got a rehashing of, of this for a new generation. A new generation who needs to believe God's promise that what? You are my people. And I am your God, and I am going to go before you. And so Deuteronomy is a place where we read the great commandment that says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. God says, Love the Lord your God. Trust me. And so they do. And so the people of Israel trust the Lord. And under the leadership of Moses' protege, Joshua, they go, a great name, by the way, right? Joshua. They go into the promised land. And just like the generation before, they went across the Jordan River on dry land. They went across the Jordan River on dry land, and Joshua leads them into the promised land. But it would not be an easy path. The nations of the land had become strong. They had built walled cities. And you may remember the story of Jericho, which is told in the book of Joshua. The battle of Jericho. And how did they defeat their enemies? Was it because they were so mighty and so strong? No. It was because they trusted the Lord. God said, march around the city. Blow the trumpets. These are a people of faith, not a people of military might. A people who are trusting God. Why? Because you will be my people. 
and I will be your God. And so they march around Jericho and the the walls come tumbling down and God brings people into their community and they grow and they grow and they grow and they begin to take over the entire area of Canaan, the promised land. There are some difficult passages in Joshua. Difficult for us to swallow because of the judgment that God is pouring out on the nations that are disobedient to him. And it's very hard to read about God's judgment, especially when it's meted out by his people in a military fashion. It's very hard to read until we realize how how incredibly wicked humanity can become. You may not know this, but in the land of Canaan, there was great oppression. In the land of Canaan, there was sexual deviancy and slavery. In the land of Canaan, there was even a common practice of child sacrifice. These were nations that had become so opposed to God that his judgment was poured out through the people of Israel to be his instruments of justice. And as God's people came into the land and they meted out justice, they began to settle in the land. And as they settled in the land, they continued to have conflicts with the people of the nations around them. They began because they didn't didn't do what God said. They didn't wipe out all of the nations. They left some. And because of that, they became a snare. And so God sent judges, judges who came to be military leaders to help the people get out of the mess that they were in, to deliver them from their enemies in the land, in the promised land, as they're trying to settle the land. You may remember Gideon. You may remember Deborah. You may remember Samson. These were judges that God sent to deliver his people. And the very last verse of this book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And it says this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. See, Israel, even though they had come into the promised land and they were giving incredible blessings, they still, their hearts still wandered from God. They forgot that God said, you will be my people and I will be your God. During the days of the judges, we read a story about a young immigrant woman named Ruth. A young woman from the land of Moab who gets connected with the people of Israel, she gets connected because they had fled the land because of poverty and the, and the violence that was happening in the land. Ruth says to her mother-in-law in Ruth chapter 1 verse 16, Naomi is going back home to Israel and she says, Ruth, you need to stay here. Stay with your people. And here's what Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. See, Ruth was putting her faith in this old promise that God made to his people that you will be my people, and I will be your God. It was a time of violence. It was a time of despair. It was a time of darkness. And the book of Ruth ends with a story of redemption where this immigrant woman is 
brought into a family where she is actually married and where she is with child, would her child be that promised offspring of the woman all the way back in the garden where God said, the offspring of the woman will crush the offspring of the serpent? Would this finally be the one? The book of 1 Samuel begins to tell the story of how God raised up a priest who heard the voice of God audibly, who responded to the voice of God by guiding God's people. But the people were not satisfied with God being their king. They were not satisfied with God being their king. They wanted a king like the nations. And so God allowed them to have a king named Saul. But Saul was not a king who was building God's kingdom. He was a king who was about building his, his kingdom. Saul was about himself. Saul was a, a king, not a wicked king, but a king who was focused on himself and not on building God's kingdom. And because of his disobedience, God told Samuel, the priest, to go and to find a shepherd boy whose name was David. He said, go find the most unlikely king that you can, and he will be my king. The most unlikely king is a little boy who's a redneck who lives out in the country. He's the youngest in his family, and God says, that's my king. Not Saul, who everyone thinks is mighty, but the little boy, that's my king. Why? Because God says, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And so your king needs to be a king who's going to look to me in faith. And David was that kind of king. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a man full of faith and confidence in the Lord. But David was not only a man after God's own heart. The book of 2 Samuel begins to tell us David was not the one to come. He fell short in so many ways. He was far from the king that the people needed. But even in David's darkest sin, even in David's darkest sin, he came back to God for grace and mercy. He confessed his sin to the Lord. He was honest about it, and he sought mercy and forgiveness. We're going to talk in a moment about some of the things that David did to, to advance the people's worship by writing psalms. But the next book is 1 Kings. In 1 Kings, we read about David's son Solomon and about how he sought not for riches, but for wisdom. Solomon was the one who would finally build the temple Take the tent, the tabernacle, and turn it into a permanent structure in Jerusalem. And so Solomon built this magnificent, ornate temple in Jerusalem. He brought all of the riches of the world into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the top of the world. This was the golden age of Israel as Solomon reigned. But soon after Solomon, his son Jeroboam was a fool. And because of his foolishness, he turned the hearts of the people against him. And the kingdom divided and so that's why there's a separation here between the united monarchy and the divided kingdom. 
And from that point on, from Jeroboam on, there would be two nations. The northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. All the kings in Israel in the north were wicked kings. In the south, there were some faithful kings and some who were not. The story continues in 2 Kings. And God sends prophets to speak the truth to power. Elijah, Elisha. They come and they speak the truth to these kings, but the kings don't want to hear. And so God gives these prophets powers. They, they raise the dead. They call down fire from heaven. They enlist angel armies to fight God's battles. But the kings and the people were stubborn in their sin, so that at the end of the time of the kings, the northern kingdom of Israel fell into exile in 722 B.C. And the southern kingdom of Judah fell into exile in 586 B.C. Both kingdoms fell to the nations, Assyria and Babylon. The books of First and Second Chronicles are a retelling of these two periods of time. First Chronicles is a retelling of First and Second of First and Second Samuel. Second Chronicles is a retelling of uh, First and Second Kings. Sometimes we need to retell the stories, right? If you read through the Bible, you're like, I think I've read this somewhere. That's because God likes to remind us <laughs> of what's happened, and He does that in our own lives too, doesn't He? First and Second Chronicles focuses on the reign of David and his southern kingdom of Judah. All right, so we have this period of time between the kingdom of Israel, or the, the kingdom of Israel, the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, and then the exile. And during the exile, there are no historical books. So there's kind of this period where the people are carried off into captivity. But then they return. And when they return, they are led by a scribe named Ezra and by a descendant of David named, uh, not Jeroboam, hold on, I got this, Zerubbabel. Okay, y'all try to say Zerubbabel. Right, Zerubbabel. All right, so a descendant of David and, and the scribe Ezra came back into the land. They got permission to come back into the land by the decree of Cyrus. And they came back into the land and they began to see that the land was a, was a rubble. It was a mess. That everything that they had built all those years was destroyed. The temple, uh, the, 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 the temple was destroyed. The, the walls of the city were destroyed. And so Ezra comes back and says, the first thing we have to do is restore worship. And so they began to rebuild the temple. And as they're rebuilding the temple, they face opposition and so God sends a governor called Nehemiah who comes and reinforces the effort and begins to not only rebuild the temple but to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It says in Nehemiah that God placed his home, his home city on his heart. He was part of the inspiration for me moving back to Orangeburg, that God placed my home city on my heart. And that's what God did for Nehemiah. And maybe God will do that for you. Place your home city on your heart. And so God brought Nehemiah and he began to rebuild the walls. And it says that the people had a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other because they faced opposition. Well, word of the opposition got back to Persia where 
Esther, a, a young Jewish girl, was being held in captivity, in exile. And Esther was appointed for such a time as this, when there's opposition to God's people. And Esther ended up becoming a queen in Persia. And because of her influence, she was able to um, coordinate victory for God's people, relief and help for God's people, Israel. That's the story of Esther. That is the end of the history section. Then you have the poetry. The book of Job is the story of, of a man who endures great suffering. A man who endures great suffering. A godly man who never loses his faith. His wife and his friends offer no help. God finally shows up and overwhelms him with uh, 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 the truth of God's majesty. God is in control, Job. I know it doesn't look like it, but God is in control. And the message of Job is that we can trust God even when we don't understand our pain. The book of Psalms is a collection of 150, 150 psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It is the hymn book of the Old Testament. Much of it was written by King David, and, and yet it spans a long period of time. There's even a psalm written by Moses. And there's psalms written by many different people. It's a hymnal. And the book of Psalms expresses a wide spectrum of human emotion. It expresses joy, of course, praise and worship, shouting to God with a voice of triumph. But it also expresses pain. It expresses sorrow. Today's Father's Day. Sometimes Father's Day can be a day of sorrow. When, we're, when, we, when we remember the father that we had and we lost, or we remember the father, or we think about the father we never had, or the father that we know that we failed to be. <laughs> the Psalms talk about the sorrows of God's people, the joys of God's people. They even give expression to righteous anger. They even give expression to righteous anger. 150 of the Psalms. The Proverbs. The Proverbs are a collection of wise sayings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Most of these are written by Solomon or attributed to Solomon. And so they're, they're right here in the United Kingdom, the, the section, because they, they kind of all flow out of David and his dynasty. The next book is the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a philosophical treatise on the meaninglessness of life apart from God. You can have all the wealth in the world. You can be on top of the world and still be unhappy. Isn't that incredible? And, 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 and the teacher in Ecclesiastes discusses that and fleshes that out and talks about, it's really philosophical. He talks about how life can really be awful. You can have all the good things and still life is miserable. And he says, what's the point? <laughs> over and over, he says, everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless under the sun. But the point is, everything is meaningless under the sun, apart from God. Apart from knowing that we are his people, and he is our God. The last of the books of poetry is the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon uh, will make you blush. 
The Song of Solomon is an epic love poem about a newlywed couple. It's an epic love poem about a newlywed couple, and yes, it is right in the middle of the Bible. Sections of this book are quite graphic, especially in the original Hebrew. They're quite graphic sexually, because God is not bashful about this beautiful creation that he made called marriage and sex. He's not bashful about it. There's a whole book in the Bible about married love. And when a husband and wife fall into each other's arms and make love, God rejoices. That's what the Song of Solomon is all about. The last book of poetry. Now we turn to the prophets. The major prophets first. We have Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet to Judah. He had a very long career. He delivers messages of warning to God's people. He calls them to repentance. He predicts the fall of Judah to the Babylonians. And yet he sees a day of restoration. He predicts that the Messiah will come. So many of those passages that we read around Christmas are in Isaiah. The stories about the coming who will be born of a virgin, Isaiah. He will suffer for his people, Isaiah. And then at the end of the book of Isaiah, he, he, he looks even further into the future, into the new creation, and he says there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and God will restore everything someday. Isaiah just, like, he does it all. Isaiah is amazing. Jeremiah, who came in the years after Isaiah, actually lives through the terrible time of the Babylonian attack and the time when they went into exile. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Because even though he brings God's word to the people, nobody will listen. Sometimes I feel that when I'm up here preaching. I'm like, nobody's listening. People are falling asleep. I'm like, no, I feel like Jeremiah. And I'm not weeping, but sometimes I do. (laughs) Amen. Where is he? Jeremiah, down here. He's in the southern kingdom to Judah. All right? And then you have Lamentations, which was written by Jeremiah. But Jeremiah uh, goes over the period of um, of of the exile. Hold on, something's wrong here. Sorry, I knew this was going to happen. They're over here. All right. (laughs) I knew there was something wrong. Okay, this is the return. This is the exile, okay? Exile, return. All right. And then Lamentations. Yeah, come on now, that, was, that wasn't too bad. All right, so Lamentations is written by Jeremiah, who's down there. And he writes about, it's called Lamentations. Why? Because it's a lament. It's a mourning. It's a cry because of all the terrible things that are happening. As Babylon comes into Jerusalem, attacks the city, people are dying. Children are dying. Lives are being ripped apart. The temple, this majestic place where, where God's people met with God was being ripped down. And so there's an entire book called Lamentations. It's, a, it's a, a, a poem about God's people weeping over everything that was happening. During the exile, God sent prophets to the people in exile. One of the prophets was named Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet to God's people Judah as they were living in Babylon. And Ezekiel wrote down his prophecies that deal with the cause of God's judgment. Why are we in this situation? And he says, it's because you forsook God. You went to the idols of your heart instead of the God who is. 
Ezekiel speaks prophetically against the other nations, and he says God is going to judge even these nations. Even Babylon, God is going to judge. But he also ends with a vision of the dead coming to life. Hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh. A vision of the future salvation God would bring. Daniel is the story of another prophet who ministered in exile. Daniel was a prisoner, basically, in the court of the Babylonian king and then the Persian king. And Daniel was a, a young man who was learning to be faithful to the Lord in a, hostile, in a hostile culture. There's a lot we can learn from Daniel today. Learning to be faithful to God in a hostile culture. Daniel was rescued from the mouth of the lions. Daniel saw a vision of the Son of Man who would finally bring God's kingdom to earth. These were the three prophets during the exile. Uh, Jeremiah in Lamentations, Ezekiel and Daniel. And last we have the twelve. The twelve minor prophets. The twelve books that nobody reads. But we should. Let me show you how they fit in. The first one is Hosea. Hosea was a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom. So this is back during the time when the kingdom was divided. Hosea spoke and focused his ministry in the north, calling people to repentance. God called Hosea to actually do something really strange. He called him to go and marry a prostitute. <laughs> and so this, this, he tells his life story, and he goes and he marries this prostitute. Why would you do that? Well, because God wanted to show his love to a disobedient and faithless people. And so the story of Hosea is a story of God's redemption. That God loves people who are wayward. God loves people who keep going away and she was unfaithful to Hosea and he kept going back to her just like God keeps going back to us time and time again to say, you are my people and I am your God. Hosea spoke to the northern kingdom of Israel. Joel, another great name. Joel ministers in Judah during a time of drought and plague. He speaks of the signs of God's judgment, and he predicts a time when God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Amos, a shepherd, I believe, spoke words of judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel and the surrounding nations who have continued to follow after idols. Amos is in the northern kingdom. Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. If you want to get started reading the Old Testament, Obadiah. Obadiah is speaking out against a neighboring country called Edom. You see, when the Babylonians came in to attack Jerusalem, the, Edom, the Edomites, who were right next door, and they were actually related, they were distant cousins to the, to the Israelites, they just sort of stood by and didn't do anything. They didn't help. In fact, they mocked the people of Judah as they were being destroyed. And so the book of Obadiah is a short uh, prophecy against Edom to say, look, you were wrong for what you did, and God is calling you to repent. The book of Jonah, which is pretty familiar, right? This is the one that, of the 12 that we probably have read, and we just did a sermon series on it. Jonah is the prophet in the northern kingdom. 
He's a prophet to the, to the north, but he also becomes a prophet even to the enemy, even to Assyria, who ends up destroying Israel. He's sent to them to say, turn to God. And he says, no thanks. And what does he do? Jonah runs away, and God pulls him back, rescues him with a great fish, vomits him out on the beach, and says, okay, I really do want you to go to my enemies. I really do want you to show even my enemies that there's mercy for you if you'll just believe. So Jonah goes. Following Jonah, we have Micah. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. Micah preaches the word of the Lord to the southern kingdom, to Judah. He preaches a message that says, don't just be religious. He says, God doesn't really want your outward religion. He wants your heart. He wants a changed life. He wants you to, to look to him. And, and, and Micah is where we get our, our words right behind me that says, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. It's a desperate plea to Judah to turn back to the Lord because you are his people and he is your God. The book of Nahum is another book to the, to the southern, uh, another book to Judah. And, and Nahum speaks to the city of Nineveh, just like Jonah. But this time, they were threatening not only the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom. And so Nahum speaks words of warning and judgment against Nineveh. Habakkuk, this is a prophet who was not afraid to ask God the hard questions. If you want an encouraging, quick read, read the first couple of chapters of Habakkuk. This is a prophet who's not afraid to ask God hard questions. He says, God, why are you using our enemies to bring discipline to us? Why would you use such a wicked people like Babylon? Why would you, why would you do this, God? Can you relate to that? <laughs> That's Habakkuk. God reminds Habakkuk of his faithfulness and of his sovereignty over all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's one really famous quote in Habakkuk that says this, the righteous will live by faith. He says, the righteous will live by faith, Habakkuk. So trust me. Trust me because you will be my people and I will be your God. The last prophet to Judah is Zephaniah. Zephaniah warns of the coming day of the Lord. He spreads the message of the day of the Lord to the surrounding nations, and he says, everyone needs to turn from their idols and turn back to God. This is a common theme among all the prophets. But he ends with a word of hope. And then we're going to fast forward, okay? So most of the prophets, as you can see, were during the divided kingdom. Most of the prophets, the written prophets, were during the divided kingdom. Then you have the exile, and then you have the return. And there are three prophets, the, the last three books in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are written to the exiles as they return to Jerusalem. The first one is Haggai. Work had begun on the temple. They were rebuilding, but Haggai realized that the people were dragging their feet and he said, we got to restore worship. we got to do this. we got to return to worship the Lord. And so Haggai encourages the people to, to get after it and build the temple. Zechariah was one of his homeboys. They, they, they piled around together. They were together, these two, uh, Haggai and Zechariah. And they had the same message. we got to build this temple. we got to get this thing built. Why? Because 
Zechariah says, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey. Your king is coming to you. The message, the hope of the Messiah, Zechariah speaks these words. In Zechariah chapter 8, 7 through 8, Zechariah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east and from the west, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. That message, from the beginning of the Bible to the very end, you will be my people, and I will be your God. The book of Mal- that would be a great place to end, but Malachi brings us a little bad news at the end of the Old Testament. The little bit of bad news is that, once again, God's people, even though they had been through all of this, they had seen God rescue them time and time again. He had been so patient and merciful to them. He had given them the word of the prophet, the, the hope. He had been with them even in the exile. And now, at the very end, the people are turning away again. And Malachi comes and preaches repentance to them. He says, don't rob God. He says, God hates divorce. You're just doing the things that the world does. Turn to the Lord. Put your faith in the Lord. Don't worship idols. Worship the Lord your God. And some of the very last words of the book of Malachi, some of the very last words of the Old Testament are Malachi saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. I will send a messenger who will come to you in the wilderness to declare the day of the Lord. And that's where the Old Testament ends. It leaves us hanging. It leaves us realizing that we're just going through the same cycle of disobedience and failure and turning back to God in faith and disobedience and failure and turning back to God in faith. And this is who we are. It's a story of us. It's a story of us. God leaves us hanging. And I know you can see the New Testament over here, okay? I know you can see what's coming. You know what's coming. Elijah is going to come. And the king is going to come. The day of the Lord. But we will pick that up next week. What is the story of the Bible? The story of the Bible is very simple. You will be my people and I will be your God. Lord, we thank you for this message. Lord, I know it was a lot. It was a lot. I felt like it was a lot to just hear how it all fits together. And Lord, I pray that you will stir up interest in our hearts. Lord, that we would uh, be more interested in going into the word and saying, oh, let, let, I want to read more about that. And Lord, I pray that you would stir up the hearts of the people right now to go home and to, to open their Bible and to begin to read of some of these stories that we've mentioned today. And Lord, that we would see that you truly have called us to be your people. From the very beginning, when we turned away from you, you called us to be your people and that you will be our God. Lord, we want to be in that restored kingdom. We want to be in the, the future kingdom where we are completely with you forever. And yet we live in the struggle. So Lord, thank you for your word that helps us to get through the struggle that helps us to know who you are, to see how you've related to people over time, and to see the word that you have for us that we can trust, we can rely on your word. 
the scripture, the word of God. Lord, we thank you and we bless you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.